Mark chapter 15 tonight. Living in a remote forest in the northern edge of Canada, Trapper John, his closest friend was a faithful German shepherd named Duke. And every few days, he and Duke would take an overnight trek through, the, through all his trapping area and check his traps and, and he'd pick up, you know, um, animal pelts and that was his way of making a living in that rough way of living up there. He would go to the trading post in the distant town and give those pelts and it really sustained their very simple life. Um, Trapper John and Duke shared each other's company for over 10 years since he had traded furs and uh, when he was just a little puppy, uh, you know, he's traded his first fur, uh, furs and the dog loved the man, often protecting him from animals, often from coyotes and other things that were out in their night treks. Duke even seemed to listen attentively as Trapper John would talk to him around the fire at night. Um, although it was a lonely existence, Trapper John had chosen it and he loved it. Um, on one trip into town to sell some of his you know, furs and purchase more goods, he met her. Uh, the, he knew in town this young woman, he had meet, immediately caught his attention. She worked at the trading post and seemed anxious to engage in, him in conversation. And they enjoyed dinner together. And after that, John started making more frequent trips into town. That spring they married and she moved her things out of, uh, to the trapper's cabin in the woods. Their first child was born the following winter, but tragedy accompanied the birth of their beautiful daughter for Trapper John's wife died in childbirth. Brokenhearted, he had no choice but to take his baby girl into town to live with a kind family willing to take care of her until she was old enough to return to the cabin. She was almost a year old when Trapper John brought her back to his cabin in the woods. And uh, now he's kind of faced with the challenge of raising a child while, while sustaining their existence with trapping. And during his overnight trips, he would leave Duke there to sort of guard the sleeping baby, knowing that he would protect her if she were in danger. Um, and then on one such trip, tragedy once again visited his small little family. Returning home early in the morning after checking his traps, John came to the top of the hill overlooking his cabin. His heart pounded wildly when he noticed the front door of the cabin had been pushed open. Throwing down his pelts, he raced to the open door to check on his daughter. As he entered the cabin, his worst fears were realized. The baby's little bed was covered with blood. And in that moment, he caught the sign of Duke cowering in the corner, covered with blood. Enraged, the man cocked his rifle, pointed it directly at Duke. You killed my baby, you killed my baby. And John's anguished roar awoke the child who startled out of sleep with a little cry from underneath the bloodied blanket. John, his finger on the trigger and his dog um, uh, in the gun sight, turned his head toward that cry. With a sweep of his hand, he uncovered his unharmed baby. It was only then, <clears throat> then that he saw the dead bobcat behind his daughter's bed in a heartbreaking moment of understanding. He realized that he almost killed the one who had saved his baby's life. That story is one we would listen to and think, oh, wow, heart-rending. They were beating and spitting upon Jesus, mocking the one who had saved them and ultimately killing the one who would save them from their very sins. Not just them there on that day, the chief priests, the Jews, the Romans, those with the wagging heads walking by the cross, they would all mock and put him in the sights, ready to pull the trigger if you would, because 
they really didn't realize he was not only not the problem, he was the answer. Um, you know, uh, it's funny, everybody tries to, well, we didn't kill Jesus, we didn't kill Jesus, but really, we all, we all killed Jesus on the cross. We're all guilty of the sin that put Jesus on the cross to begin with. And one of the things I hope we, we can actually do as we go through this gospel is to continue to try to move the calluses off of our, our hearts uh, when we talk about the cross and understand the, the, what's really going on. Um, I think sometimes we know so much about the cross and we talk about the cross, we sing about the cross, we do communion all the time, that you can almost, if you're an old timer Christian, you can almost lose the, 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 the truth behind the cross, um, that it was our sin that crucified perfectly innocent Jesus. Not only was he innocent, but he's the very one who was saving us from our sins while we crucified him on the cross. So a dog, a sad story, but nothing compared to what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us. We left off last week in verse 20 where the Roman guards took Jesus away to be crucified. And we pick it up in verse 21 tonight. Um, and you know we've been kind of moseying through this, uh, so we gotta try to finish this up tonight. I'll try to resist the temptation. There's so much here to talk about. Verse 21. It says, and they compel one Simon, a Cyrenian, who passed by coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Uh, we talked about this on Sunday, um, you know, and we talked about Simon the Cyrenian from Libya. He was a Northern African man who was compelled to carry the cross. And we talked about his response to the cross. But one of the things we touched on was um, you know, the, the, there's perhaps breadcrumbs that we can follow to realize that this man was saved, but not he alone, but it, perhaps his whole family. Um, but I didn't tell you the whole story on Sunday because there's kind of a good news and bad news. The, the good news is it seems Rufus um, that's mentioned here, who would have been more of a contemporary of John Mark himself, probably about the same age. Rufus and John Mark could have been buddies. What about Alexander? Well, that's the part I left out on Sunday, kind of on purpose, because Rufus, we saw this on Sunday, chapter 16 of Romans, verse 13. Paul the apostle saluted Rufus, chosen in the Lord and his mother and mine. Um, I mean, Rufus gets ink in the Bible because he's chosen of the Lord. He must've been an amazing dude. And most scholars believe Rufus is the one who kind of goes down as a believer who is chosen in the Lord and a blessed guy. That's cool. But what about Alexander? Well, did you know there's an Alexander mentioned a couple times in the New Testament? I didn't mention him. Check out this. First Timothy, Paul says this, uh, tells Timothy, you know, holding on to the faith and a good conscience, which some having put away concerning faith have made shipwreck of whom is Hymenius and Alexander whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Huh? It seems that Alexander, if it's the same Alexander of Alexander and Rufus, the sons of Simon the Cyrene, perhaps it's this Alexander uh, who uh, has made shipwreck his faith. Why? Because somehow they were blaspheming the name of the Lord. So some suggest that Rufus was the, the son that went right and Alexander perhaps was part of the church, but then he sort of fell away. And Hymenius 
and Alexander uh, go down as the bad guys. Uh, talk about getting ink in the Bible. It'd be great to be Rufus, not so great to be Alexander or Hymenius, you know, the guys that go down in history as, you know, a problem for Paul the Apostle and for the church. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because uh, it says, Alexander, he departed from the faith. And beware of things that will lead you astray from the faith. Paul talks about those that were, had swerved away or moved away from the true faith in Christ. And it's so sad when, when that kind of thing happens. Um, but uh, how do you guard yourself? Uh, remember, Jesus warned us in the last days, false Christ, false prophets, false doctrine, and false teaching would all be part of the deal. We should understand you and I are living in days where that perhaps is uh, even a greater danger than we even want to admit. Um, but I think it's so subtle that a lot of people aren't keeping their guard up. And like Paul the Apostle, I would say Acts 17, 11 it. You know, uh, you know, you gotta check and see, like in Acts 17, the men that were more noble than those of Thessalonica in Berea, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind, it says there, um, and searched the scriptures daily to see if those things were so. So when you hear somebody talking, whether it's your pastor or your podcaster or your Instagram tweet, or do, no, they don't tweet on Instagram, whatever they do uh, on Instagram. Um, but, um, but even Paul was um, double-checked against the word of God. Search the scriptures, be a student of scripture, plug into t uh, to scripture. Um, it's okay to listen to Bible teaching. In fact, the Bible says that the teaching's part of the deal and Bible teachers are part of the deal. But you gotta check them and make sure that what they're saying. I'm amazed what people believe and go for without really checking the scripture. Um, giant things that people have just blindly accepted um, over the, the centuries that are just nowhere to be found in the Bible and yet they take them as gospel truth. Um, I was talking to a buddy you know, today about how you know, our Catholic brothers and sisters, um, they don't check the scriptures as much as some of our Protestants. Now, Protestants are just as guilty a lot of times, but, uh, but, but the Catholics for, you know, for hundreds and hundreds of years, there's been papal edicts that have come down and, and councils that came up with harebrained ideas that have really hurt the, the church of Jesus Christ. Um, the idea of pastors not being married, that was just some harebrained idea of something that uh, some dude came up with in some council. Um, praying to the saints, not biblical. Indulgences, not biblical. Calling someone in the church a father. Jesus said, don't call anyone your father. Uh, like, like things that the church just embraced blindly. Um, uh, you know, the Bible says, Timothy, 1 Timothy says, um, there's one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus Christ. Not, not the saints, not Mary, you know, praying to the saints or whatever. Uh, that's all just the stuff people have made up. It's not in the Bible. Check the scriptures. And, and I would say check the Catholic church and check Athey Creek equally. Check us because um, we, people mess up scripture pretty badly, pretty quickly. Watch out for that. We don't want any part of that. Uh, whether you're a Catholic or a Protestant, you gotta search the scriptures. Um, you know, th this is interesting that Hymenius and Alexander uh, go down as the bad guys where Rufus is the guy that seems to be faithful. So um, just kind of an interesting sideline there about Alexander and Rufus. That's what most scholars believe. It's, it's the Alexander that Paul sort of says, man, he's out. And Rufus is the one uh, that he calls him his son in faith. And, 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 and even Rufus's mom, Simon's mother, was Paul's mother in the faith. He called her that. Well, 
Um, question on this before we leave this here in Mark 15. Um, ever wonder why Simon carried the crossbeam? Why is that even in the story? Um, does it mean anything? And I, I'm just one of the guys that believes that the, everything in the Bible means something. So it's always kind of fun to search the scriptures and wonder. But you know, um, if you know your history, um, crucifixion was very common in, in uh, the Roman Empire, even as it was in Judea there. Uh, common thing. And Josephus, the ancient historian from the first century, wrote a lot about Roman crucifixion. But one of the things, they would make the person who was the sinner carry the beam. That, was, that, was an, that wasn't just Jesus they did that. This, was, um, this would be uh, very common for them to carry their own instrument of torture up wherever they were gonna crucify uh, the person or the victim. Uh, Josephus talks about some of these wood beams were around 100 pounds, uh, the cross beam used for that. Um, uh, why wouldn't Jesus carry it alone? You, you might say, well, Brett, he's, he'd been whipped with a flagellum 39 times. Uh, that killed most men. So maybe he was just ailing from that. And that would be reasonable. Um, he'd been beaten with a reed over the head, punched in the face, all those things. Um, but the Roman law, whoever sinned would carry the weight of the cross. But, but we're the ones who sinned, not Jesus. Could Simon just be a picture of you and me? We're the ones who really carry the wood if you, if, if you wanna really be honest about it. No wonder Jesus wasn't, wasn't gonna be the one who would carry the wood. He was sinless. Um, I almost wonder if the Lord snuck that in there uh, so that we could be reminded that, <clears throat> that we're the ones. Simon might just represent you and me um, and what have you. Well, verse 22, and they bring him unto the place Golgotha, which is being interpreted the place of a skull. Now we could probably get really off on a tangent here tonight. I'm gonna try to resist that. Uh, but um, but uh, the skull, um, uh, some, some translations and other gospels even say, uh, you'll, you'll read there, the hill of the skull. The word hill is not in the original language. That's something that translators added to try to help clarify. Um, it, it really j just reads like in the King James and the, in the uh, Mark's gospel, the place of a skull. That's what Golgotha means. Um, where do we get this word Golgotha? Well, Golgotha is uh, the, the Greek word that means the place of a skull. Um, uh, so the Greeks would have called it this, but it's interesting because if you go back, uh, have you ever wondered where the word Calvary comes from? It's the Latin word that means Golgotha. Uh, Calvary is the Latin word, uh, Calvaria, which means um, the place of a skull. Um, and they believe this was called the place of the skull um, before, long before the Romans were ever there. Um, in fact, Jerusalem had this place of a skull for perhaps centuries before this even happened. Um, and so they would, have, they would have, the Hebrew people, the Jewish people would have called it the place of a skull, um, as it turns out. Now, um, so uh, it's kind of interesting when you sort of break down some of these words, that'll kind of help you. Why do we call it Calvary? And why do we still call it Calvary rather than Golgotha? Um, kind, of, kind of an interesting question. Um, uh, we, we, we call it that because, I don't know, Golgotha sounds so, I don't know, um, uh, Gotham, uh, Batman, uh, it's evil. Calvary is something sweet to us. Oh, Mount Calvary. Um, but it still means the same thing, skull. Um, and, um, and so why, question, why was that place um, 
uh, called the place of a skull. Now, do you guys remember the mountain that this is all on? What, what mountain is all of this on the story? Mount Moriah. Now, if you remember, that goes all the way back to Genesis 22. A uh, thousand years earlier, you know, um, or, or actually more than uh, 2,000 years earlier, when Abraham brought, you know, Isaac up Mount Moriah to sacrifice his son, and there was a God provided himself a, a ram in the thicket. We went over that. Uh, so this, this place is really fascinating just to think of the, you know, the, the radical things that have already happened here in the world. It seems like Mount Moriah is where everything God kind of does is right there that's gonna be hugely impacting to humanity. So it's worth thinking about, why would they call this hill the hill of the skull? Um, well, there's, there's some, some scenarios that we could go over and I'll just give you a few of them. Uh, scenario one, maybe this was a place where skulls were. Um, you say, well, Brad, what, what are you talking about? Um, why would they put skulls there? Well, it was outside of the town's gates, the city gates, and I already told you about the Assyrians who used to pile up skulls. That was something they did, not just the Assyrians, but you know, the Romans would put skulls and put spears in the ground and put skulls on the heads you know, of these uh, places just to freak people out and say, man, don't mess with this people. You know? um, it's ultimate defeat uh, when you see skulls laying around. Um, and this is where they would have done it. Maybe some, some argue the Jebusites. Uh, remember before it was Jerusalem, it was Jebus and the Jebusites were there before David became king. Jebusite was, uh, Jebus was the city. Maybe the Jebusites called it the place of a skull. Maybe that's where they put their skulls or whatever, or the enemies put their skulls. Don't know, that's, that's kind of your most uh, uh, tame scenario possibility. Scenario number two is, could it be that this place looked like a skull? Um, and one of the things that's interesting is if you, maybe you've been to Israel, uh, and the question is, when was the last time you were in Israel? Uh, because uh, that, that can make a big difference about your view on this. Because many of you, have, if you've been to Israel, maybe you went to the garden tomb. Um, there's, there's a couple places they believe Jesus died on the cross. Um, some say it was the garden tomb found by the British in that garden tomb area where there was a, um, a perfect scenario. In fact, the nine requirements the Bible gives us for the location of, of not only the, the death, but the burial of Jesus, this garden tomb fits all nine of those criteria. Um, uh, then there's the Church of the Holy Sepulcher where that was deemed uh, the official site by uh, you know, Helena, the mother of Constantine. So uh, she wasn't exactly an archeological brilliant person, but she claimed that's the place. Um, I'm not saying it's for sure not, or which one is exactly, I don't know for sure, um, but, uh, but this place, Gordon's tomb, if you've been there, there's actually a place where they would cru crucify people on the top of this sort of hill. Um, and the hill itself kind of looks like a, like a skull. If you were to go back to this hill, back in, there's a picture of it in the year 1900. I'll give you the picture of that in the year 1900. Um, and you can kind of see sort of a skull there. Um, but that's 1900. So this is only, you know, um, 123 years ago. Um, um, if you fast forward to when I was there in 2015, uh, from a little different angle, but it still is kind of looking like a skull. Um, if you fast forward to 20, uh, the last time we were there, I think, uh, and, and also today, uh, this is what it looks like. The middle nose section kind of fell out uh, because of uh, corrosion and stuff like that. 
which kind of leads one to believe, how do we know what it looked like 2,000 years ago? Uh, you know, we've watched it from 1900 to the present. By the way, um, in the first picture I showed you, there was nothing in front of it. Uh, in these modern pictures, those are the tops of buses. It's a bus station now. Uh, one time Debbie and I were there enjoying a nice little visit to the, the, the Hill of the Skull and a bus driver jumped out of his bus and just unzipped his pants and started using the restroom right there, you know, right, right on the Hill of the Skull. It was the Hill of the Urinal uh, for this bus driver. Um, we were kind of stunned, just kind of, wow, this holy moment we're watching this guy. Anyway, um, <clears throat> uh, but... So, so some say it was the hill of the skull because of its location and the way it looked, it looked like a skull. And, but that's a more modern interpretation. And I'm, I just don't know what that erosion looked like 2000 years ago. Maybe it did, maybe it didn't, who knows. Uh, but it, that is a theory. Um, scenario or theory number three. Now this is where it starts getting kind of maybe conspiratorial and maybe a little uh, out there, but it is interesting. Um, are you guys familiar with origin? Uh, Origen was an early Christian scholar from 185 uh, AD to 253. Um, and he, was, he wrote some brilliant, brilliant things. But Origen said, he, he actually wrote all about this, that, that Golgotha is where Adam's skull was buried. Now, where in the world did Origen get such a harebrained idea that Adam's skull was built, buried there on Mount of Golgotha, or the hill of the skull? Um, where Jesus would die on the cross. Uh, where did he get this? Well, this was Jewish, or, uh, Origen got it from Jewish oral tradition. The Jews passed that down through the ages. Now it's not in the Bible. So you gotta be really careful when you read stuff that's not in the Bible, but it, it goes in the interesting category to me. Why would the Jews for millennia argue that Adam's skull was buried there at that place. Um, I, 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 I could go into some of the reasons Origen gives and why Jewish tradition touts that. But minimally, the thing that's just kind of interesting about that, do you remember what the Bible says about Jesus and Adam? There's, there's quite a link to Adam and Jesus. Jesus is called the last Adam and Adam of the Garden of Eden was called the first Adam. Uh, let me just give you a couple scriptures. First Corinthians 15, 44 through 45. Um, it says, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. Verse 45, and so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last man, uh, Adam, was made a quickening spirit. Um, and what is this about? Um, you know, uh, the first Adam was a living soul that could die but the, the last Adam, Jesus, was one who could make alive, a quickening spirit. Uh, it goes on in chapter 15, actually earlier in the chapter, it says, for since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam, all die. Even so in Christ uh, shall all be made alive. So the first Adam brought sin and death, the last Adam conquered sin and death and brought life. And so um, it, it is an interesting thing. If, if Origen was onto something, who knows, but there is a link in the Bible between the death of Adam because of his sin. Adam's sin in the garden brought death to humanity. And then Jesus um, rose from the grave uh, and uh, had conquered death. Um, uh, interesting, we'll, we'll talk more about that maybe in a little second. Scenario number four, are you guys ready for this one? Okay, you thought that was crazy. Um, scenario number four, uh, some say, no, 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 it wasn't Adam's skull that was buried there. It was Goliath's skull that was buried there at Mount Calvary. Um, in fact, in the church, the whole sepulcher, there's a whole section 
of that given to that, uh, the idea of Goliath's skull and what have you. Um, uh, so uh, the, the place of the skull, Golgotha, might be Goliath's head being buried there. King David, um, uh, do you remember the story? In fact, um, uh, what happened? First of all, where did the giants come from? Well, it's Genesis 6. Remember in Genesis 6, chapter 4, there were giants in the land and the earth in those days. Um, and there were the sons of God that came down into the daughters of men and they bare children. The same became mighty men, <clears throat> men which were old, men of renown. And <clears throat> they, they were these, um, these Nephilim or giants, uh, Anakim uh, giants that would come into the land. So, so, uh, now you're saying, Brett, do you believe in giants in the past? I sure do. The Bible says there were giants. What's amazing to me is how scholarly uh, people try to beat themselves to death trying to not believe there was giants in ancient times. Even though every people group, whether you're talking about South America, they found archeological digs with little hieroglyphics or whatever you call them uh, with giants in their folklore. Every group has giants in ancient pre, you know, old world history, uh, it's all there. Um, and uh, especially the older it gets, the more you hear about giants, kind of interesting. So where did these giants come from? Well, it was this demonic thing about the sons. You check out Genesis six or through the Bible study. I'm not gonna go into all that tonight. So, so you got this giant, Goliath, who's part of, I think, that, that group. Uh, and, um, and you got the story. In fact, would you keep your finger here? I'm gonna show you something that's really odd in the Old Testament. Uh, and it's, it's, uh, it's all the way back in 1 Samuel. Keep your finger here in Mark. Go with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17. This is the part of the story of David and Goliath you didn't color in Sunday school. Uh, you know, you colored the part, oh, a little guy running down with his five smooth stones and, you know, defying the giant, which was really cool. And, um, you know, what was the last thing that went through Goliath's head? David Stone. Uh, and um, it, was, it was a thud, you know, and he hit the ground. And then that's, you know, that's the way you kind of finish the story. But the story goes on in 1 Samuel 17, starting in verse 51. After the stone struck his head, <clears throat> verse 51, therefore David ran, stood upon the Philistine and took his sword, the Goliath, the giant's sword, um, and drew it out of its sheath thereof and slew him and cut off his head therewith. And when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. Um, they said, that's not a way to get ahead. So, um, sorry, sorry, verse 52. And the men of Israel and of Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines until you come to the valley of the gates of Ekron. And the wounded of the Philistines fell down by the way, Sha'araim, even to Gat, to Ekron. Verse 53, it says, now this is strange. And the children of Israel returned from chasing after the Philistines and they spoiled their tents. And verse 54, David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem and put his armor in his tent. What did David do? Now, you gotta understand, um, if you go to the Valley of Elah, which we do when we go to Israel, we go to this very valley where the, David killed Goliath, um, it, you know, it's, it's a fairly long bus ride from Valley of Elah back to Jerusalem. So first of all, this would have been a, 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 you know, a couple days journey. Like, like David would have had to make a huge trip to go. And, and what is he doing? He's carrying this huge head uh, under his arm the whole time. 
In fact, if you put the story together in the way the Bible tells the story, it seems that he was carrying the head around for about three days. Um, uh, how big was Goliath's head? I mean, I know that's starting to get gross, but um, if you know that he, they believe minimally he was over nine feet tall, some believe over 14 feet tall, but uh, because of the weight of his spear and the, the dimensions of some of the stuff we know about Goliath, he was huge and he probably had a huge head. So here's David walking around with this giant head, literally giant head. Um, <laughs> um, and, and so... So that's weird, but there's something even weirder. Does anybody know what's weird about this? It says, David took the head and went to Jerusalem and put it in his armor and his tent. Anybody think something else was weird there? Jerusalem wasn't even a city at that time. It was called Jebus. Um, it would be Jerusalem years and years later when David would, with Joab, shimming up the shaft, conquer Jerusalem. Years, way in 2 Samuel is when David conquered Jerusalem and turned it from Jebus to Jerusalem. So the Jebusites had Jerusalem at this time. Why in the world would David take Goliath's head to Jerusalem? And when he got to Jerusalem, what did he do with it? Brett, that's just really gross. What is this, a horror movie? Nope, it's Wednesday night Bible study. Um, 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 now, what's interesting um, about David, people forget about David um, that he was a prophet. Did you know David was a prophet? You could argue David was one of the greatest of the prophets in the Old Testament. He rivals Isaiah the prophet. When you compare the Psalms, I'll show you later more of David's prophet kind of status. Um, but in the sense that David was a prophet, it, this is almost like a prophet type behavior. Now, uh, you gotta start connecting some dots. Jesus was a descendant of David. Are we clear on that? Uh, I wanna make sure you understand that. Matthew chapter one, one, the first mention of David in the, Old, in the New Testament, for you um, hermeneutic people, the first mention of, new, of, of, of David, it's right here in Matthew one, one, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, of Abraham. And, and by the way, the last mention of, of uh, Jesus, or I should say the last saying of Jesus, even in Revelation 22, verse 16, at the very end of the Bible, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and the morning star. So, um, so when David brings Goliath's head to Jerusalem, um, and the giant, giants in the land speak of evil and, and the, the, the agents of Satan, if you know the Genesis 6 account. And here's this giant that David slays, okay? And, and, and most scholars and Bible students would recognize, okay, the story of David and Goliath, um, of course, that's a type or a picture of Jesus Christ uh, slaying Satan. We already see that as a type or as a picture. Um, if you go, do you guys know what the Proto-Evangelium is? It's a fancy way of saying the first mention of the gospel in the Bible, and that's Genesis 3.15. Do you remember what the Lord said? I will put enmity between thee and the woman, thee speaking of the serpent, the snake, the devil. I will put enmity, enmity between the, the devil and the woman, the serpent and the, and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. Women don't have seed, by the way. So that's a little weird to say that in the Bible. There's a reason the Bible says that. Anybody know the answer why he's saying her seed? The virgin birth, right? So between thy seed and her seed, it... What's it? Her seed um, 
shall bruise thy head, or literally crush thy head, and thou, the serpent, shall bruise his heel. When would this sort of cataclysmic event happen? It would happen in Mark chapter 15, our story about Jesus having victory over death on the cross. In so doing, crushing, yes, the serpent uh, bruised his heel. Um, is bruising of the heel a deadly injury? Um, I broke my Achilles tendon playing racquetball. Um, it was not fun, it hurt. Um, but you know what? I'm alive to tell about it, but you get your head crushed, you got a problem. You only have one of those. Um, you you kind of need to take care of your noggin. Um, and the enemy, his, his, his head would be bruised or literally crushed, but thou shalt bruise his heel. So the prophetic message uh, here in the Proto-Evangelicum, the first mention of the gospel is Genesis 3.15. Um, you know, it talks about the, the, the one that would supernaturally be born of a woman and the one, uh, Jesus, uh, the promised seed of the woman would uh, actually crush the head of the skull, if you would, of the serpent. So suddenly you've got this giant, a result of demonic satanic uh, activity, perhaps David bringing his head to Jerusalem and then burying it where? Well, we can't be certain on this, but some say maybe it was the hill of the skull. Maybe that's why the Hebrews called it the hill of the skull. When they eventually would move in, that would have been sort of legendary. Remember when David, our king, carried, when it was Jebus, the city of Jebus, carried Goliath's head into Jebus and buried it up on that hill right there or on the side of town? Uh, why did David bring it to Jerusalem? I don't know for sure, but it is curious. So there are some that make this huge argument that it was Goliath's head, that's why it was called the hill of the skull, which seals the deal of Jesus crushing the head of, of the evil one, Satan himself. Um, just kind of an interesting thing to think about. I, I'm probably not doing service to it. You can read better uh, works and scholarly works on some of this stuff um, that's better than what I just tried to do. But uh, I just wanted to wet the whistle, uh, something to think about. Well, back to Mark chapter 15, because uh, we have to finish the chapter before the night's over. <laughs> Told you, I, uh, tangents, um, possible. In verse 23, it goes on, and it says, and they gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh, but he received it not. This mixture, most people believe it was some kind of a form of an anesthetic. Now, why would they do this? Why would they give a, a crucifixion person an anesthetic? Um, it wasn't out of love and compassion usually. It was actually to prolong the suffering of the cross. Um, if you could sort of, some people would pass out because of the pain, which would cause them to die earlier. <clears throat> if a person passed out on the cross, <clears throat> the next thing, those that know about this stuff, the next thing that would happen is they'd suffocate if they passed out because of the way the cross would, um, you know, pull your shoulders out of socket and it would cause your muscles around your pectoral muscles to spasm and it would cause your heart to be confined and your lungs restricted. And so to breathe, a victim on the cross had to stretch out to gasp for air. It was like a, it was work just to breathe on the cross after hours of hanging there. Um, but if you passed out, you would die. So sometimes they would try to ease the pain so the person would uh, take longer. And the Romans were art, this was an art form to them. Make someone suffer <clears throat> for two to three days. That would be the kind of the goal. Make a, make a person suffer for days. Um, but interesting that Jesus refused that. Um, why? I don't know for sure. 
Did he wanna keep a sober mind because there was still work to do? Um, we know the story. He's gonna talk to the thief on the cross. He's gonna say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they, like he's got a clear mind. He didn't, he didn't drink the wine mingled with um, you know, myrrh and all this stuff. He, 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 he felt all the pain of the cross. That's something to remember. He received it not. Well, verse 24, and when they had crucified him, they parted his garments, uh, uh, casting lots upon them, what every man should take. Um, this is a fulfillment of Psalm 22, uh, um, verse 18. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. I'm gonna show you the whole Psalm 22 later on because it's the Psalm of the cross. I, I just wanna show you where these little points of prophecy about the crucifixion are perfectly uh, fulfilled. In John chapter 19, verses 23 through 24, it says that the soldiers parted it in four ways because there were four soldiers. Like we talked about on Sunday, that would be typical. Four soldiers, one centurion. Um, and they were actually, they divided it into four, it says there. Now in verse 25, people see what they believe to be biblical contradiction. Uh, in verse 25, it says, um, and it was the third hour and they crucified him. And so uh, what's interesting about that in John 19:14, it doesn't say the third hour. Um, is there a contradiction? Uh, uh, well, the third hour, <clears throat> by the way, um, is 9 a.m. John's hours don't match up with Mark's hours. And you say, contradiction in the Bible. Um, but it's actually a very simple and easy answer. John uses the Roman measure of time in the day uh, Mark uses the Jewish measure of time in the day. Um, when, when it talked about the third hour uh, of the day, that would be, do you remember that the Jews, they went from 6 a.m. to, uh, or 6, uh, um, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. was kind of the Jewish day. Uh, so the, the third hour of the day to the Jew would have been uh, 9 a.m., okay? That's kind of important to know. So the, the, the times actually match up perfectly, but we as Americans that have our little time system all figured out globally, and we're all kind of synced up for the most part, um, uh, we forget that in ancient time, time wasn't all locked down the way you explained the hours of a day uh, and, and even calendars, everybody used different calendars, the Babylonian calendar, the Jewish calendar, um, the Gregorian versus the lunar, like there were different calendars even. So time was something you have to kind of be careful with when you're talking about that in Bible time. Don't let your <clears throat> pipe puffing, cardigan sweater wearing professor say, see contradiction in the Bible. No, just do your homework. Uh, try to figure it out for, for, for once. Um, these guys are goofy. Well, uh, it, it was the third hour, which means 9 a.m. Now, these are gonna come in threes, three threes, from 9 a.m., and then we're gonna move to 12 p.m., uh, and then 3 p.m. So the, there's kind of a, a nine hours of the cross that we're gonna be talking about here. Um, verse 26, it says, and the superscription of his accusation was written over the king of the Jews, and with him they crucified two thieves, one on his right hand and the other on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, and he was numbered with the transgressors. We've already talked about how this was a fulfillment in Isaiah 53, 12. He was numbered with the transgressors, just with these two thieves. But Pilate puts, you know, Jesus, king of the Jews, and he puts it in um, multiple languages, three times in John's gospel. Um, Pilate knew that the, the religious leaders 
wanted to kill Jesus out of envy. We saw that in verse 10. And, and then Pilate called him king of the Jews as if he were really king of the Jews. And the Jews didn't like that at all. Um, do you remember um, uh, when, when, Mark doesn't tell us this, but do you remember in John's gospel, 19 verses 21 and 22, then said the chief priest of Jews to Pilate, write not king of the Jews. But Pilate said, uh, pardon me, the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Uh, in other words, I'm, I, I don't care what you guys think, I'm calling him king of the Jews. This made the Jews mad because they didn't want to acknowledge him as king of the Jews. So we looked at that. This is all part of the fulfillment of, of, uh, you know, of prophecy, numbered among the transgressors. And he is, in fact, the king of the Jews. Verse 29, more Bible prophecy fulfillment. Verse 29, and they that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads and saying, ah, oh, thou that destroyest the temple and build it in three days, save thyself and come down from the cross. Um, this, we talked about this on Sunday, um, uh, Psalm 22. This is where they wagged their heads and shot out at the lip saying, he trusted the Lord that he would deliver him, but he can't even deliver himself. They mocked Jesus there. Um, uh, kind of missing the whole point of what Jesus was doing there on purpose. Verse 31, likewise also the chief priests mocking said among themselves with the scribes, he saved others himself, he cannot save. Uh, we talked about this on Sunday. That, he, that they acknowledged that he could save others. Uh, that's a weird admission. He saved others. They, they probably accidentally admitted that. But then they say, but you know, himself he cannot save. But we know Jesus, it's not that he could not save himself, but it's that he would not save himself um, because of, of love for you and for me. Um, uh, then verse 32, they said, let Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe that they were, uh, and they were, uh, they that were crucified with him reviled him. Uh, we'll believe when we can see. Has that worked for Israel in any time of their history? No, that's one of the things we've harped on as we go through the Bible. That's, that's a huge theme you get through the Bible. Jesus in John 20, verse uh, 29, when he talked to doubting Thomas, oh, Thomas, because you've seen me, you believe. Blessed or happy are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Um, that's part of what we call faith, believing without seeing all the facts or details that we wish we could have. But if you even had all the facts and even had miracles right in front of your face, as it turns out, miracles never really produce faith. Children of Israel were delivered from Egypt with plagues. They saw the parting of the Red Sea. They saw fire come down from heaven. They saw uh, food fall from heaven um, and birds come down from heaven. Uh, and countless other miracles and signs. The Jews had a huge catalog of great miracles that they saw for 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Question, how was their faith? It was their faith that kept them out of the promised land. They didn't go into the promised land because of unbelief. If anybody should have had belief, if, if miracles produce faith, the Jews should have been the champions of faith. But miracles do not produce faith. Um, how is faith really produced? Anybody? The word of God, uh, Romans chapter 10, verse 17, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's how faith is really built. So uh, the thieves are reviling him. The Jews are reviling him. They're all you know, doing their thing. Now, verse 33, we come to the sixth hour, uh, which is 12 p.m. Verse 33, and when the sixth hour was come, 
there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Um, now, now that's three hours of darkness. Remember the uh, eclipse that we had a few years ago? That was pretty cool because most of this region, we all got a nice, if you just went just a little south of here, you had kind of a perfect uh, eclipse and it was strange. I mean, it was, it was something kind of, it was, it was, if you were in it, we, we all knew what it was. But it was a hot day that day. I remember down there, and me and the kids and Deb, we all went down in my pickup and got our little you know, glasses and uh, sat in, in chairs in the back of my truck. And we were watching down there towards St. Paul. Because um, uh, if you just went down there, you'd have the full eclipse just you know, all the way down there. But, um, but man, when it got dark, it got cold. Suddenly cold and dark and the dogs were barking and it just was really kind of cool to see. And it was quite an event. But can you imagine that for three hours? You'd be thinking, oh no, is the sun gonna be on forever? Like, is it ever coming back? Three hours. It was just a few minutes here in the Pacific Northwest that we got to see total darkness in the middle of the day. Um, and we knew what was going on. These guys didn't have any clue what was going on other than, wow, we just hung this guy on the cross and now we got three hours of darkness. That, that, that's another thing we forget that actually took place. Um, darkness in the midday. Um, it reminds me of the plagues of Egypt. Of course, the water turning to blood, frogs, lice, flies, livestock dying, boils, hail, locusts. But after the locusts came darkness. And does anybody remember how long did the darkness uh, last in Egypt? Three days. That's interesting. Three days of darkness. Um, and then the firstborn children were killed there um, during the Passover. But is, isn't it interesting, there's something just to think about, after the three days of darkness, then the death upon the firstborn, that was the next thing. Um, it's kind of interesting that three hours of darkness, then the death of Jesus Christ. The death of the firstborn would be the Passover, and those that had the blood of the lamb on their door, death would pass over them. So we have three hours of darkness, Jesus, the lamb whose blood is the one that we sprinkle on the door, if you would, the Lamb of God, he dies so that we might have life eternal. It's, I see connections all throughout the Bible. We could go on and on about those connections. But in verse 34, and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Um, this, this perhaps could be arguably the most excruciating time for Jesus as he's hanging on the cross. Excruciating because of pain? Maybe, but maybe not that as much. Why is he crying out? Um, he cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, why did he cry this out? Um, there's a few reasons. Um, you know, I remember when I was a kid, I remember hearing this thinking, man, it seems like he's lacking a little faith. Come on, Jesus. You know, keep your chin up. I was a little kid. I, I, I kind of wondered, like, what's up with this? Why is he thinking God has forsaken him? And, um, and, 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 I, and I think it was part of my misunderstanding that, um, that did God forsake Jesus at that moment? Um, you say, well, no. Well, well, yes. I mean, no. It's one of those hard questions to answer. But you gotta remember Isaiah 59, verse one. Behold, the Lord's hand is not short that he cannot touch you. His ear is not heavy or deaf that it cannot hear but your iniquities have separated between you and your God and your sins have hid his face from you that you will not hear. So Jesus, who'd always been not only perfectly united with the Father, I and my Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. 
Jesus always said, I always do the will of the Father and I am the Father are one. Like Jesus made those statements through his whole life. Could this be? Because Jesus suffered and felt all struggles, all stress, all the strain that we've felt. In all points, he was tempted like us. Did Jesus ever felt forsaken by God? I believe he did. And it was at this point. And he cries this out for several reasons. I'll give you another big reason here in a minute. But, but I believe it's possible that not just crying out in pain, but cluing everyone in on what was happening, uh, actually. Do we realize what Jesus does? You know, to be absent from, from the presence of God, could that be one of the worst things we actually ever experience when we're distant from God, separate from God? Now, if you've lived your life apart from God, you don't know any different. But if you've lived your life, much of it with God and, and close to God, there is a feeling that you can't hardly explain when you sin against the Lord and you know you've, you're living in sin or actively taking up sin and you wonder what in the world's wrong with you and why you're feeling empty and dark and sad and guilty and condemned. Because apart from, separate from God is, is painful for all of us. How much more would it have been as Jesus took all of our sins? He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. Could it be when he became sin on our behalf, he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Um, because he never felt that separation before. Um, by the way, if you're one who's walking contrary to the Lord and you're walking in sin, living in, and practicing sin, and you wonder why you're miserable, um, it, it could be because you're distant from God. And it's not God who walked away from you. It's your sin that separated you from God. I think that's an important thing to know. Well, Brett, that's depressing. Yeah, but the remedy is so great. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And guess what? We're restored right back to good standing with God the Father. I love how new mercies we see every morning with our Lord. He's forgiving us day by day and his mercy never runs out. His grace is sufficient even, yes, for you. Um, that's beautiful. That's a wonderful thing. So this emptiness that Christ feels here is part of that. He cries this out, um, which I think is, if he feels this for the first time. Um, Mark and Matthew recorded only this one, uh, of, uh, this one of Jesus's seven sayings from the cross. That's an interesting study in itself, the, to study the seven sayings of the cross. And it's Mark and Matthew that, that mention this one. Um, so after the ninth hour, 3 p.m., Jesus cries, um, Eloi, Eloi. Now this, the word Eloi, um, if you, that, that's from more of the Aramaic. If you take it from the Hebrew, this is important because the next verse, he says that the Hebrew version would have been Eloi, Eloi, Lama Savaksanai. Um, uh, Aramaic from, uh, from a Old Testament quoting. Now, um, the reason I say that is because they're gonna say, is he calling out to Elijah? And you say, how did they get Elijah out of Eloi? Eloi, Aramaic, Eli is uh, the Hebrew version of that. Kind of interesting. That's why they were misunderstanding this whole thing. Um, now, where did Jesus get this saying? Um, you, know, um, you know, Mark translates for us uh, here in his, his writing. He, he gives us the Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, Amasavachthani. And then he says, which is being interpreted. And Mark interprets it into Greek. And then King James interpreted the Greek into English for us. Okay, are you guys with me on that? And if you look at the original Greek, uh, my God, my God, literally, for what reason have you forsaken me? Or, or did you abandon me? Is literally the Greek 
For what reason have you abandoned me? Is, is the question there. Now you say, okay, Brett, so you, you said that one reason because he's separate from God because of his, the sin that was piled on him, that he didn't commit our sins, there was separation. I believe that's true. But the second reason uh, he cried this was to identify as the Messiah. It would be the Messiah who would cry this out. And we know this from one of the greatest messianic prophecies in all the Bible about the death of Jesus Christ. Would you keep your finger here and go with me to Psalm 22? Psalm chapter 22. We touched on it Sunday a little tiny bit. We've already touched on it a few times tonight, but we can't you know, just blow through the, the story of the cross without reading one of the great prophecies of the cross written by David himself. Um, you know, this is the, again, the link between David and Jesus. Um, Jesus was quoting from Old Testament scripture when he cried this out. He was quoting the Psalm of the, of the cross, Psalm 22, verse one. It says there in Psalm 22, one, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not. And in the night season, and I'm not silent, but thou art holy. Oh, that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee. They trusted and didst deliver them. They cried unto thee and were delivered. They trusted in thee and were not confounded. But I am a worm and no man a reproach of men and despised of the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out at the lip saying, uh, they say, uh, they shake their head saying, he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him seeing he delighted in him. Now this is, you're recognizing, if, if you've been with us in this study, you're recognizing, wow, this is a lot of stuff that's already happened in Mark 15. Shooting out at the mouth, the wagging of the heads. But, but interesting that the David says, I am a worm, there, verse six, and no man, a reproach of men, despised of the people. Um, this is one of the more powerful prophecies in the Bible about Jesus. Um, and, and I've done studies on this before, so I'm not gonna belabor this, uh, but this worm, the, the Hebrew word for this word worm is the word tola or tolit, uh, different ways of putting it in the Hebrew, but it's a specific worm in the Middle East. I am a tolit, tola, is what Jesus, or what David says here. And the, the, if you wanna look this up, it's caucus elysis. It's a specific worm. And it's the worm they used in ancient times. They'd collect these worms off of trees and crush them up and it made a bright, bright red dye. The, they would make red garments uh, out of the female body of the worm, caucus elysis, as they crushed it up, bright red, uh, interesting little worm. But it's what's even more interesting when, when you know, he's this Psalm of the cross and he says, I am a worm and not even a man. Um, what's he saying? Well, this worm is so fascinating. Did you know this worm? It starts off as a little worm and then it, like a caterpillar, it, it climbs up on a tree and it attaches itself to a tree. Then it, the female worm gives birth to its little worm babies and the little wormlets come out. And guess what? The, the, wor the little worms, how do they survive? Um, is it nursing on their mother's? Yes, but instead of nursing, they eat the mother. They eat on the mother's body. Like, and the mother dies. She has been attached to the, the tree. She's like permanently fixed to the tree. Um, and then the little worms eat. 
and, and it leaves this bright red, like kind of a, almost looks like a red cocoon sort of thing. In fact, I brought my pictures of the Cocos alysis. Um, these are some of the pictures. Now, what happens is this red, red worm, uh, this is where they get the red dye from that top upper left-hand picture, and they crush that up and get a huge red dye. But the little worms eat that. Well, after the worms eat from that, they climb off the tree, but then the, the, the mother worm turns into a white little flaky substance, almost white as snow, um, but it leaves a white flaky substance stuck to the tree. Um, but then uh, what's interesting is that white flaky substance starts to, as time goes by, flake off and fall like snow to the ground, but underneath the flaky substance leaves a red substance on the, on the wood of the tree. Um, this is the Cocos elicits. And that actually, all those pictures are pictures of the phases. Uh, that one big tree has a red spot in it. That's from several of those worms being attached to that particular area. Um, interesting that a worm attached to a tree dying to save its young uh, ends up uh, with a red spot on a, on a tree, but then though it once was red, it becomes white as snow. That's an interesting little thing to find out. And here's the Psalm of the cross, Jesus saying, I am a cocos alysis. I am a tolet worm, uh, the one that attaches to a tree and dies for the life of its young. I think that's all description of crucifixion prophetically. It's all pretty fascinating when you read your Bibles on that. Um, we're still in Psalm 22. Let's, let's keep going. Verse, um, verse nine. Um, uh, but thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. I was cast uh, uh, upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Be not far from me, for there's trouble near. Um, there is none uh, to help. Many bulls have compassed me strong. The bulls of Bashan have beset me around. Um, uh, we could go into all this. I'm gonna resist the temptation. You can look up Psalm 22 study. There's so many good things here. Verse, verse 14, check this out. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. Does anybody know how Jesus died? Well, already died on the cross. No, I understand that. But if you are a forensic examiner, uh, Quincy MD for you old people that are here. Um, how would Jesus die? Well, well, scientists have looked at the whole story and there's enough information to tell us what happened. Remember when the spear went in his side, what came out? Blood and water mixture. Um, and this tells us something about what was going on on his insides and not to get too uh, medical, but they believe Jesus, his heart, remember I told you the heart becomes restricted because of the pec muscles and the way that, they believe his heart was so stressed that it actually literally burst so blood and water from his insides came out of his side. Um, isn't it interesting, the language of this, I'm poured out like water, my bones are out of joint. Not broken, was any of Jesus's bones broken? Filling a prophecy, no bone of his would be broken. That was a fulfilled prophecy. But out of joint, my heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. That's exactly what happened. Verse 15, my strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. Thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones. Um, in other words, have you ever crashed your bicycle when you're a kid and you're laying there? Okay, right femur, check. Uh, you know, right humerus, 
check. I've done that. I've had crashes like that where he kind of did an inventory of bones that were okay. Um, this is what he's, what he's saying here. He's saying, all my bones are okay. I, I, I may tell all my bones uh, and they look and stare upon me. Um, they part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. But be not thou far from me, O Lord, O my strength. Um, haste thee to help me. Do you understand, like, I, I don't know if, you, if, if you're fully grabbing, I hope you are, this, this psalm was written 1,000 years before Jesus would die on the cross. That's why Psalm 22 has to be one of the most fascinating prophecies in all the Bible. This is one I love to show my Jewish friends because a lot of my Jewish friends in Jerusalem, they just have a disdain for Jesus. But I love to read them their Bible. Read Psalm 22. And, and who are we talking about here? The one whose hands and feet have been pierced. The one who cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Like the Psalm 22 is clearly about Jesus, the Messiah of the Jews and of all the world. Um, but I'm gonna leave it there for now. Uh, there's so much more in Psalm 22 that we could talk about, but it was all foretold. Jesus is fulfilling point for point, prophecy after prophecy. Just, just keep checking the boxes. Well, quickly back to Mark 15, uh, verse 35. And some of them that stood by when they heard it, said, behold, he calls Elijah, Elias, Greek form of Elijah. And um, one ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink saying, let alone, let us uh, see whether Elijah will come and take him down. So they're not, um, you know, giving vinegar out of compassion, but out of curiosity. Let's keep this going. See what happens if Elijah shows up. More mockery, more, more of the same. Verse 37, and Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. Um, question, what did Jesus cry out with a loud voice? It is finished. John 19.30 tells us what he cried. Uh, Mark doesn't. That's uh, another one of the sayings from the cross as he bows his head and gives up the ghost there in John. Uh, not a cry of defeat, but a cry of victory. It is finished. What was finished? Everything that was needed to save humanity from their own sin. Praise the Lord for that. Verse 38, and the veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to the bottom. And when the centurion which stood over against him saw that, he so cried out and, and gave up the ghost that, that he gave, pardon me. Uh, and when the centurion which stood over against him saw that he had cried, so cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Veil torn, meaning access to God. The rending of the veil, the ripping of the veil in the, in the temple was evidently witnessed by many priests. Um, I mentioned the one guy that was in there and I, I said, you know, he sees the Ark of the Covenant. I meant to say that, that in times past, it's the veil of the temple. Um, the Ark of the Covenant was very not likely there in the, the first century. But still, the Holy of Holies was still the Holy of Holies. You didn't have access to it. Um, but I believe many priests were possibly at work that day, not just one. Um, three three o'clock, is when this happened. We know the timing. And you know what was going on in the temple at three o'clock? Um, this, was, this was the evening sacrifice. All the priests would have been busy doing that work of the, you know, that by this time it was just ceremonial and didn't really mean much to them. But there was probably priests serving in the temple that very afternoon. Um, and this had to have an effect on them. And I believe that's why in Acts chapter six, verse seven, it says, and the word of God increased and the number of disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. 
Who are these priests that went from crucifying Jesus to suddenly saying, yeah, we're part of the faith and we're obedient to Jesus and the faith that he you know, promoted? Um, I believe it could be some of these priests that saw the veil of the temple rip. I think that's pretty cool. Um, the centurion, he says this, we talked about his confession. Was it just observation or was it a confession to salvation? Um, and I, I believe it's possible that he uh, was, was, was confessing to salvation. Well, Brett, why wouldn't he be saved? Well, there is a difference between someone acknowledging that he exists. Question, you know, um, do you think Satan believes what this, this centurion said? Truly, this man was the son of God. Satan believed that too, but is he a believer unto salvation? No, he's, he's doomed. So the idea of, of someone just saying, well, because I know that Jesus existed and died on a cross, that doesn't necessarily mean, the idea is believing in faith, um, obedient. Remember what these guys, the priest says in our verse, they were obedient to the faith. Satan never did that. Uh, you know, that is to believe what Jesus taught. Matthew 7, 21 through 23 has this haunting scripture. Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, we have, not, have we not prophesied in thy name? In thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. That's, that's uh, where we have to kind of be careful. That's why I wouldn't say for sure the Roman centurion was a believer unto salvation. I hope he was. But you have to be careful with that one. Satan believes Jesus existed, but Satan isn't saved. Well, verse 40, there were also women looking on afar off, among whom was Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the last son of Joseph and Salome, who also, when, she was in when he was in Galilee, followed him and ministered unto him and many other women which came up with him to Jerusalem. We talked about these women last uh, Sunday and Saturday, uh, examples of what believers should be. These are the, the, the girls are the one who got it right in the story. Everybody else was kind of flaky and wacko, but it's the women who did it right. I love that. Verse 42, um, and now when evening was come, because it was preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, an honorable counselor, which also waited for the kingdom of God, came and went in boldly unto Pilate and craved the body of Jesus. And Pilate marveled if he were already dead and calling unto him the centurion, he asked him whether he had been dead any while. And when he knew uh, uh, it of the centurion, he gave the body to Joseph. A couple things about, you know, this, this is another account eyewitness account of, of the confirmation of the death of Jesus. This is important because there's a bunch of people out there that will say, well, Jesus didn't really die. He swooned. He, uh, you know, he, he didn't die. They thought he was dead, but he wasn't really dead. It's like the movies, you know, when you think, oh, that person's dead, you know, but then they get up off the ground and stumble off into the distance and come back for another day for vengeance, you know. Um, that's what people try to say that happened to Jesus. Everybody thought he was dead, but he wasn't really dead. He swooned. Um, and, but if you know the story, uh, uh, it's ridiculous to think that Jesus was put in a tube, 2,000 ton or 200 uh, or two ton stone rolled over the entrance. And Jesus, after having been whipped, stabbed to the side with a spear with blood and water gushing out, um, hanging on a cross, uh, the Romans knew what dead was. And it, before you tell Pontius Pilate, no, he's dead. You'd make sure, is he really dead? Uh, can you double check and make sure Jesus is really dead? They double and triple checked that Jesus was dead. And the Romans were experts on death. 
So it's, it's ridiculous to suggest that Jesus didn't really die, um, but he merely swooned. So he was put in a tomb and suddenly after the cool damp air, it started feeling, he, he just woke up and feeling so much better. And so strong had he felt, he rolled the, the two-ton stone away, fought off all the Roman soldiers um, and uh, came and said, I'm back to the disciples. Uh, that takes more faith to believe that than that Jesus just rose, rose from the grave. So um, why was Pontius Pilate curious about how, curious about how quickly Jesus died? Um, it's because the Romans made it an art form to make it last. There was a reason they wanted these guys to die quickly though, it's because of the Passover and they didn't want it to go over time there. And so they were breaking the legs of the other guys, if you remember. They, the, everybody was glad that Jesus was dead because they didn't wanna have to deal with the body uh, later during Passover time and stuff. So um, it's just another confirmation, this part of the story. Joseph of Arimathea, is a lawyer who's a good one. Is there such a thing, Pastor Brett? <laughs> yes, there are good lawyers. Uh, this one, it even says, he was an honorable counselor. I like the adjective there. Uh, honorable counselor um, who was also wealthy. He was a lawyer, but he was also probably part of the Sanhedrin, most scholars believe. How did Joseph of Arimathea just stroll in to talk to Pontius Pilate? He had to be someone of reputation and of authority to even do that. But he goes in there and he asks for the body of Jesus. Verse 46, and he bought fine linen. Um, question, could he have bought fine linen right then? No, because it was the preparation for the Sabbath. The stores were already closed. Nobody's selling stuff at this point. You don't sell something at that time in Jerusalem, which means he probably had already bought this stuff before in preparation. This is kind of interesting insight. He bought fine linen, took him down and wrapped uh, wrapped him in linen and laid him in a sepulcher, probably his own wealthy man's sepulcher, um, uh, in the sepulcher, which was hewn out of a rock and rolled a stone to the door of the sepulcher. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, beheld where he was laid. So you gotta love this. Uh, by the way, Nicodemus uh, um, was also there in John 19. Um, and brought myrrh and aloe. Joseph of Arimathea may have had status because he was easily strolling in, but he was not too important to humble himself and take the body of Christ. Um, Joseph of Arimathea, interesting guy to study and think about. Um, but uh, this, this story of the cross, don't become callous. Let's let it hit our hearts and do its work. May we never forget the cross. May we never be callous about the cross but constantly in the Bible. Read this story, read Mark 15 regularly because it's an important chapter, amen? Amen. Lord, we thank you for this passage that reminds us of the glory of salvation, the glory of the gospel message. And for these folks who've taken this time tonight to study this chapter, finish it up, Lord, we're just thankful. As we wrap up the book of Mark, Lord, give us understanding, help us to apply the truth of your word practically. Um, may it bring forth good fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.